Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. We've been talking a lot about climate issues on the show lately, and not exactly sure why this is, except for the fact that, well, maybe Stefan Hen, our researcher here, has a big influence, and he suggests a lot of uh, great guests on this topic, and I think he's interested, I know he's interested in the issues, and, and I am as well. I always want to put these climate issues in the context of this is one aspect of evaluating fossil fuels impact on human life, but we can never take it outside that context. We can never just act as if CO2's impact on climate is some end in itself, and that's all that we're studying, and certainly not this idea that, well, we're either just affirming or denying an impact, and if you affirm it, you're a believer, and you must hate fossil fuels, and if you deny it, you're a denier, and that's your justification for loving fossil fuels. I mean, all of that is nonsense. That's like saying, as I've probably said on this show before, that if you believe that you either believe in side effects for anti uh, for uh, well antibiotics, but I think of vaccines or not, and if you believe in side effects, then you're a believer, and you must be against antibiotics. Sorry, I'm 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 butchering that one a little bit. Uh, let's try that again. If you believe that vaccines have side effects, you must be anti-vaccine, and if you're pro-vaccine, you must be a vaccine side effect denier. That's, that's just as logical as the climate debate. Actually, me completely flubbing my words was considerably more logical than the climate debate because at least it was obviously illogical instead of dishonestly concealing its illogic. Anyway, that said, there's lots of really interesting stuff to this issue, and I really just like understanding how the world works, and I find that with a lot of the better climate scientists or meteorologists, you learn some some really cool things about how the world works that you were probably deprived of in school, in part because all they want you to know about the atmosphere is that we are uh, allegedly ruining ruining it. So on, on today's show, we have a really interesting guy. His name is Richard Keene, and he is a meteorologist who has studied climate in a very intimate way. He's actually... Uh, he's actually been monitoring a weather station, one of the weather stations that is used to calculate all of these temperatures that we hear about when we, when we hear about hottest year ever and global temperature. So I thought it would be great to talk to him about what do, where do all of these things come from and what do they mean? What exactly is the average global temperature? What goes into making it? How accurate is it? What do the actual data say? versus what people have speculated it would say, or sometimes the media misreport that it says. So that, I think, is a really interesting topic, and that is what we will discuss with Richard Keene. So hang on. We'll be back with Richard Keene on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Dr. Richard Keene, Meteorologist Emeritus at the University of Colorado. Richard, welcome to Power Hour. 
Hi, Alex. Good to be talking to you. All right. So today we're going to be talking about a lot of aspects of the idea of global temperature. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about your background in this field. Okay. I've been a meteorologist for probably about 50 years. Uh, professionally, started out in the Army when I got drafted and then assigned to a weather unit and learned how to take meticulous weather observations, and I've been doing that ever since. And since then, I was a researcher teaching courses at the University of Colorado. My research interests included Arctic climate change, El Nino, volcanoes and climate, and also I was on several severe weather projects, otherwise known as storm chasing, where the goal was to improve our forecasts of wind shear that affects aviation, tornadoes, and I think actually we really succeeded at that. And those forecasts have really improved. And I'm actually quite proud of that. And I live in a mountain community in Colorado called Coal Creek Canyon, and I've been the weather, the NOAA designated, NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they're overseers of the Weather Service, and they have a network of observers around the country. It's a project that started with, uh, believe it or not, Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, and I've been doing the observations here for about 30 years. All right, and we're definitely going to get into those observations and, and what's done with those observations since different summations of those observations are, are made very public and we can talk about the accuracy of them. But let's go to the, to the biggest of the big pictures here. So we'll often hear, you know, X is the hottest uh, year ever. And, but I guess more broadly we hear about the globe is warming. And then you'll see these different graphs of the global mean temperature anomaly and, and people, you know, there's all sorts of interesting things about that. But one, one question that's just come up on the show as a, as a baseline question is what is a global temperature and how coherent is it? Because I, for instance, I'm in Laguna Beach right now and for once it's pouring outside and the ocean is going crazy today. And you know, you could tell me the global temperature, but that doesn't seem to, I mean, that doesn't at all indicate what's going on in all of these different uh, places. So what's, what is the global temperature and, and how useful is it as a concept? Well, yeah, the global temperature is a really elusive thing. I mean, make an analogy with your body temperature. You know, what is your average body temperature? Well, you can put the thermometer in your mouth, you get one number, you can put the thing in your ear, or elsewhere where they place these things, and you get different readings because they are different. So, you know, what is a normal or what is your average body temperature? And I don't think you can nail that down to within a few degrees. Your skin may be 85 or 90 degrees, but your core next to your heart could be close to 100. So what is the average? You'd, you'd have to put little sensors in every cell and measure those and average them. And I think you can see drawbacks to doing that. Well, we have the same issue with the global temperature, you know, as people like to define it, which is supposedly an average temperature of the surface of the earth. But that varies. I mean, I live in a mountain area, temperature in the front of my house or by the road will be different than in the back of the house or down in the valley or at the tops of the trees or on the mountain nearby that's 2,000 feet higher. 
So, again, it's a very difficult thing to measure. Um, the way it's done, there's quite a few ways. Uh, you know, the traditional method is to take stations like the, the one at my house and then average those around the globe. Well, great, you can compute an average of all those stations, but if you look where those stations are located, in Colorado there's a dozen or more, but out between San Francisco and Hawaii there's absolutely none, and that's a much bigger area. South Atlantic doesn't have any. Antarctica had none until 1957. The high Arctic was the same. You have desert regions where there's very few. You know, so they're concentrated in locations where <clears throat> where people live. And if you want to look at climate change, you need a long record. So where are the longest records? Well, it's places where people live the longest, and those places have all gone from little farmsteads to big cities or become airports that are paved with asphalt. So it's really an uncertain record, and it's hard to average. I'll claim it's impossible to come up with a, a global average that is accurate enough for your purposes of looking for climate change. Definitely, when they say such and such a year is 0.1 degree or 0.01 degrees warmer or cooler, that's just a fantasy. You can't measure the average temperature of the planet to that accuracy using surface observations. So that, as you say that, I, my mind starts dividing this issue up into a couple different categories. So one is, it would be better rather than worse if you could have an even and fairly dense distribution of stations around the world. So the idea that there are these enormous gaps around the globe seems highly problematic if you're trying to summarize what's going on around the whole globe. Uh, but then another thing, and perhaps even more consequential, is that you know, even if you did have this density, you would need uh, you would need constancy among the conditions that are present because something like asphalt can dramatically change the temperature compared to the types of changes that we're being told are, you know, momentous and, and catastrophic. So it, it, I mean, my sense of it would be, I would be alarmed if somebody could show me that in different temperature stations, uh, over a hundred years, you had something like a 10 degree Fahrenheit increase. But I, I couldn't be alarmed if the the in quote unquote increases were a lot smaller than the margin for error, which seems significant. Well, yeah, if you had a, a station in a good location where you did not have runways being paved with asphalt, black tarmac surrounding it, you know, take a place like O'Hare where there's probably a, a good square mile of asphalt and 50, 60 years ago when the weather station was set up out there, uh, O'Hare means the old orchard. You know, it used to be an orchard. It was a field. You know, the joke was in Chicago was that the readings were so far away, they were meaningless, you know. You know, no correlation to the city, and now O'Hare's an urban area. And that has added an unknown amount to the readings taken there. So when, when, when people, so it just seems completely disingenuous, to put it nicely, when people say, oh, don't worry, we've adjusted for urban heat island effect. And, because, I mean, I don't know how you would adjust with 
the precision that they're talking about when they're talking about these tenths of a degree. It just doesn't make sense to me that you could quote unquote uh, adjust in an objective way. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the urban heat island effect can be enormous. Uh, in Chicago, Philadelphia, which was my original hometown where I was born and raised, uh, the city can be, well, it used to be, you know, 10 degrees warmer. On a still night, it'd be easily 10 degrees warmer than the airport. But now the airport itself is as warm as the city, and both are 10 degrees warmer than neighboring stations outside, you know, just 10, 20, 30 miles out like Millville and Westchester, you know, all these locations that are outside of the urbanized area. And they, they still get cold. Millville, for example, sets record lows quite frequently. You know, this is in southern New Jersey. It's out in the flats there in the, in the farm country, the Garden State. And they still, they go below zero every winter almost. And Philadelphia hasn't been below zero since 1995. So it's an enormous effect. And if you have a 10-degree effect and you say the adjustment is 2 degrees, well, <laughs> you know, you aren't really adjusting for it. And different people have different ways of adjusting. Uh, one, uh, James Hansen, uh, when he was at NASA, guess his temperature record, he had a small factor he would add based on population and then later on changed that to a factor based on the the brightness as seen on satellite images under the theory, and probably pretty reasonable, that the amount of light emitted by a city is related to the energy use and therefore related to the urban heat island. But his change was quite small. It was a few degrees. It wasn't up in the 5 or 10 degree category. And then NOAA, and I think this is totally bogus, the way they adjust for the urban heat island is they look for what we call step changes. So if you have a record, say Philadelphia, all of a sudden, 1940, the averages drop a degree or two because that's when it moved to the airport. That's when they moved the thermometer out there. So they add a degree or two to all subsequent readings at the airport to make them correlate to the city, which station no longer exists. Well, they do not factor in the gradual change of the fact that there's, you know, acres and acres of black tarmac there, industrial parks have sprung up over the around the airport, and the airport is now as urbanized as Center City was 50 years ago. And that is not adjusted for. So their, their urban heat island adjustment actually increases what the, the reported warming, rather than decreasing, as common sense would tell you. I want to just raise to listeners who've heard this show a lot. We've, we've talked in the past about different kinds of incentives that individuals have. And, and one we actually talked about with uh, Pat Michaels yesterday, although this hasn't been published yet, but it'll be probably be published by the time people listen to this interview, just about how people can be very, very attached to their, their pre-existing theories along with government officials can be attached to certain theories and abortion funding in different ways. And the reason I want to bring that up in this context is that, to me, what you're, you're pointing out is that the very basis of comparison and validation of these different theories can itself be manipulated and that 
it, it doesn't have to be manipulated that much to quote unquote validate somebody's perspective and and thus it, when we hear all of the when we hear people claim vindication uh they're playing with there's a moving target and and the same people who make the predictions can move uh the the validation is that is that accurate well yeah the, these adjustments that i'm talking about they change with time so if you say look at a time series for you know pick a city philadelphia and you have going back to 16 or 1850 give or take and then temperatures and you see them going up and up and up and then you go back and look at a version made 10 years ago and the increase to that point is not as great as it is now so for example the reported temperature for a given year say 1995 that changes with time as they change their adjustments and invariably the adjustments increase the warming trend but the way that it happens a lot is is the past is cooled down so they subtract more degrees from earlier readings taken 50 or 100 years ago to make the current readings look a bigger trend and there is justification behind some of these adjustments As a matter of fact all of them they can justify one way or another but I think the fatal flaw is is they go through and look at the adjustments and they have a thing called confirmation bias. They find the adjustments that cause a greater rise in temperature and then stop there. And then don't go, you know, so not including this slow, inexorable urban heat island effect. And then another thing they do is change their algorithms for interpolating. So you have a station in San Francisco and one in Honolulu. What's in between? Well, do you take the straight average or do you do some fancy curve or whatever? You know, so basically you're filling in the gaps, and there's an infinite number of ways you can do that. So you're creating data for a spot where there's no observations. And most of the... Well, most of the surface of the Earth is created data. About two-thirds of it is created data. Now, there are ways around this. One is the satellite record, but that only starts in 1979. So you can't say 2012 is the warmest year since 1899 using satellite record. What you can say is whether or not it's the warmest year since 1979 and it isn't. The warmest year is 1998 in the satellite record. And so, the, and the but the satellite measures a somewhat different thing. You know, it, it's radiation. It measures the radiation. You know, say similar to the things they poke in your ear to measure your ear temperature. A little infrared radiometer, except they use microwaves. But they get a thing that's very closely related to the average temperature of the atmosphere through a layer. So it is something different than a surface temperature or ground temperature. What's your sense of the relative usefulness of of those two, uh, satellite versus surface? And let's say surface were collected a lot better than they are. Okay, well, surface records, you can find them going back to the 1700s. Satellite only goes back to 1979, but the satellite covers the globe and gives you a what 
I think is a fairly reliable measurement because if you compare the point measurements of a satellite, say a satellite looking at Colorado, and then compare it to a trusted station, and there's several, and I would throw mine in the trusted stations because I'm you know, very meticulous and geeky about taking these records, and it correlates pretty well with the measured temperatures. So if you want to do a global record, the satellite is the way to go, and I think it's, well, one of two ways. Another way is weather balloons, which, you know, that gets into a whole other animal too. But basically, they measure a depth of the atmosphere, and they relate very well to the satellite records. Now, if you want to use the surface records, I think where those are handy is regional temperatures. So you can pick a spot where you have a trusted temperature. In other words, you need one that's verifiably out in the boonies. You know, it's not at an airport that's grown, not in a city it's grown. It hasn't moved from a city to an airport and back again or, you know, done all these weird changes. And there aren't many stations like that, but long-term record ones, you know, say Mount Washington, New Hampshire, you know, there are places where you do have good records. And then what do the models predict for that specific location or region? And so I think that's where surface temperatures can be used to verify the models, the forecasts. And to their credit, NOAA has set up what they call a reference network of, I believe it's about 30 stations. And there's one in Colorado, actually about 30 miles away from, not even that, 20 miles away from me. And it's up on a ridge near Timberline, and it's an area not likely to have an airport put in or a city popping up. But that's only been in operation for 10 years. But those ones are confirming the satellite claim that there's no warming for 20 years. So then if we have this idea of average global temperature and uh, granting that we only have satellite data since since 1979, uh, could you take us through what the different predictions have been about this concept about average global temperature since the beginning of your career? Because you mentioned you've been doing this for 45, 50 years. So I always like to get the historical perspective on what's been predicted and what ha- what's happened versus just taking the New York Times prediction that they relate today and that they <laughs> promise will come true in 20 years if we don't stop using gasoline. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the, the concept of global warming as we talk about it today, and notice I'm going to avoid the term climate change because that's kind of a blank, meaningless euphemism. You know, the climate's always changing. You know, it's kind of a triviality. But global warming was first predicted back in the 1860s. Uh, this guy, uh, a Swedish name, Arrhenius, or Arrhenius, but he measured radiation going through, you know, coal gas, as he called it, or carbon dioxide, and solids absorbed and the gas warmed up. You know, and it's simple physics that's been known for 150 years, and thereby knowing that people are burning coal and putting this gas into the atmosphere should cause a warming. And then the devil gets in the details how much it should be. Um, fast forward, you go up into the 1930s and 1940s, there was a guy named Calendar, C-A-L-L-E-N-D-A-R, 
And the 1930s were a quite warm decade, uh, notably the Dust Bowl, 120 degrees in North Dakota. You know, it, it was hot. It was quite hot. And he was attributing that to carbon dioxide. But the theory of how much warming is due to CO2 alone is actually predicts a very minimal amount. Like even now, the warming should be on the order of a half a degree maximum since the beginning of burning fossil fuels. So what you need is to enhance that theoretical amount, have a multiplier effect, as they say in economics, you know, something that this tail wags the dog and causes bigger effects to go on. And that's what the models have been, you know, have had inserted into them, oh, say in the past 30 years or so. If you go back to about 1970, climate was stable or cooling from the 1930s. And they had a problem explaining that, but there were quite a few papers around saying, well, this was because the amount of soot we're putting in, otherwise known as aerosols, and then enhanced by volcanic aerosols going up in the stratosphere, was calling, causing a cooling which was greater than the CO2 warming. But now they claim that this, these, this soot, these aerosols don't have that big effect, but the CO2 does, and to prove that, they've introduced adjustments that have removed the dust bowl and removed that cooling trend that was so well accepted 40 years ago. So they kind of changed the data to match the evolving theory. And does that, does that bring us through today in terms of the adjustments, or I've, I've heard them called up-adjustments? Yeah. Um, again, if you look at papers that were published 40 years ago, they have a time series of what they call global temperatures based on surface stations. And it showed, it showed a very, you know, half a degree or more substantial cooling from the 1930s to the 1960s and 70s. But now you look at the records for that period, and it doesn't show that cooling because they've subtracted temperature, you know, subtracted from the readings in the 1930s and then added to the more recent readings. And this does not mean there's any more secret observations popped up. The chef, yeah, this is what we need to do. No, they're using the exact same weather stations and the exact same data because you can't go back in a time machine and take a reading from 1940. You know, that happens in movies, but not in reality. So, you know, they're tweaking the readings or rewriting history, if you want to call it that. I'm curious how much this applies to, say, the U.S., because just reading the literature, just reading people's actual experiences and all the experiences of lots of different people with lots of different thermometers, if you go back in the news and, and even in the literature, literal literature, you see, well, people are complaining a lot in the 30s and 40s about it being really hot, and then you start to get this cooling thing and everyone's going nuts and you have all these editorials published and it, that doesn't seem that caught. I don't, I haven't read counterclaims by people saying, Oh, you know what? It's nothing has changed in the weather at all. So what do, do these, are these adjustments really saying that in the U S that there was no real cooling? Uh, in the U S 
they still have a cooling in the southeast U.S., you know, Georgia, Florida, places like that. Um, that's kind of an embarrassment. So there's a lot of work, a lot of papers coming out to try and explain that. And they're explaining that, the cooling, due to natural variability. But the warming <laughs> is, of course, due to CO2. <laughs> yeah, Un unnatural you know. variability. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's due to us. So when it warms, it's us. When it cools, it's them. But you go back in history, there's similar warmings have occurred in the past, like that one through the 1930s, that calendar attributed to carbon dioxide, even though the amount of CO2 to that point was really kind of trivial. But now nobody be caught dead saying that was due to CO2. Matter of fact, that warming's an embarrassment by the very fact that it happened and they do their best to eliminate it. Or you can go back even further. You can go back to the 1700s, a guy named Thomas Jefferson who took 50 years of records at his home in Monticello in Virginia. He wrote in his notes on the state of Virginia, he was a very avid weather observer, uh, that a perceptible warming has occurred in the past, you know, in the memory of the oldest living and snows are not laying as long and they're less deep. You know, he was describing what would now be called global warming, but this was 250 years ago. And what he was seeing was a natural change. It was the end of a thing called the Little Ice Age, which, by the way, is another uh, climatological event that there's been <laughs> really strong attempts to eliminate from history, along with the medieval warm period from about a thousand years ago when the Vikings were raising barley and making beer in Greenland. And now they have to import the barley to make beer in Greenland. So, you know, but, but all this is being eliminated from the record. You may be, may have heard of the hockey stick, where yes. traditionally, you know, for hundreds of years, climatologists wrote about this, trying to explain it. They even came up with tree rings and ice cores and so on, <clears throat> showing these large variations over the past thousand years, and that it was warmer a thousand years ago. Then suddenly, about ten years ago, this guy comes up with a paper where basically based on one tree in Siberia, up on the Yamal Peninsula there, one scraggly old pine that he probably cut down to get his numbers and eliminate it. The Little Ice Age, he eliminated the medieval warm period and then he said now is the warmest since, you know, the dawn of humanity. So so there's never been global warming, or at least not in the last couple thousand years. I mean, they basically eliminated, so they're basically global warming deniers of the last 2,000 years. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, of course, the, they like to call people who don't, quote, believe in global warming deniers, but I think the real climate deniers are the ones who suppress or forget climate changes of the past, uh, which, which are historical. They're in the historical record. You know, people live through these things. I mean, right. So, I mean, you see these historical things, and, and I imagine their, their counter to it is, you know, sometimes their counter is, oh, natural variability if, if they got some overall prediction wrong. But then also, oh, well, of course, there's local variability. So sure, people were 
um, you know, which whatever you want to talk about the uh, the Greenland phenomenon, for instance. Sure, that happened, but at the same time, you know, around the globe, things were getting cooler, and so you're. They'll. they'll it seems like they say that any historical record we have is just local variability and balanced out by other global changes. Is there any? Is there any basis for that? Is there some more universal indicator that they're taking to show that, oh, around the globe, the Greenland thing was, was atypical? Well, yeah, again, there were no global average temperatures then. I guess, you know, before 1979, there wasn't really a global temperature. So you got to look at places like Greenland or bristlecone pines in California or records of mudflats in the Sahara Desert. And so, you know, you go around and there's a pretty good consistency of, you know, it's not universal. Not every place seemed to share in this, but a lot of places did. And sort of a preponderance of evidence is that there was a cold period called the Little Ice Age and a warm period called the Medieval optimum or medieval warm period. But, you know, you go back a thousand years, you don't have satellites and you don't have people living in Antarctica and you don't have anyone in Hawaii scribing temperature records down. So you kind of take the historical information that you can get. Well, so let's, let's say that that Greenland was atypical and that if you looked around the globe it was the same average temperature to me that would just and there wasn't a change in average temperature during during the medieval warm period it wasn't actually it was just the medieval same period even if that happened that to me that that would show that wow local variation is you is the real is the thing that we would need to pay attention to and thus that even if we had a fixed global temperature that we would still have significant local variations. And thus, as a society, the main focus of ours would be how do we technologically and economically adapt to any climate because there's no inherent stability in the local climate. Well, exactly. That's a great point, Alex. Um, Sometimes people attribute things to global warming and they say, oh, the frog population, you know, in Frostbite Falls is declining because of global warming, even though the temperature in Frostbite Falls is not increasing. So how do these frogs know what's happening elsewhere around the world <laughs> when in their pond it's not getting hotter? So you're right. You know, it is the local and regional climate that's really important, and it's also the biggest changes. The the theoretical global change, you know, scrap the IPCC models, you know, those are proven wrong. You know, through the satellite period, they way overestimate the amount of warming. The real amount of warming is a quarter of a degree, and half of that can be explained by volcanoes. So that leaves an eighth of a degree. (laughs) You know, I challenge anybody to step outside and tell me the difference that an eighth of a degree is going to make. You know, they can't even measure it. But you have a, a period, say, oh, droughts. And they have a period in the 1930s where half of the U.S. was very hot, very dry. It was catastrophic. And the average temperatures locally were maybe five degrees warmer than average. 
and precipitation was a fraction of average. So it was a huge change. And then somewhere else, you had the opposite. In parts of the Northeast U.S., it was quite rainy and quite cool. And that's pretty common. You know, you have these oceanic oscillations. I mean, favorite spot of mine is Alaska. I've done studies of the climate up there. And the climate up there is the climate variability is due almost entirely to this thing called the Pacific Oscillation, which is the strength of the low-pressure system up in the Aleutian Islands. Okay, so this low-pressure system up in the Aleutian Islands affects the temperature of Alaska. It can be 10 degrees above normal, 10 degrees below normal, depending on this low-pressure system. Well, when Alaska is warm, then places like California are cold and vice versa. And they're equally anomalous. So California has a drought. Alaska has wet and snowy. Alaska's warm. California's cold, vice versa. And you see that all around the globe. You know, so the biggest climate changes are due to these regional factors superimposed on this eighth of a degree of global warming. And, you know, these regional factors far outweigh the local or the global climate. I, I just find it tragic that that this kind of thing is not taught, that any kind of basic uh, meteorological understanding isn't isn't taught to people. Actually, my my friend's son has just gotten really he's three. He's just gotten into rain and understanding things. Unfortunately, he has parents that are interested in education, not just saying, "Oh yeah, it's all caused by SUVs." But there, it, people who are trying to focus us on this allegedly drastic and catastrophic increase in global temperature have almost divested it, and they do have a vested interest in not making us aware of the actual dynamic and local nature of climate. And thus, what you know, what you said is is so great in part because we never get this kind of information anymore. It's all all we hear about is. The glo this global temperature number and nothing about how it's collected or how significant it is, and then that's it. That, and then we we experience the, the local weather and local climate, and we sort of think, oh well, everything is being manipulated by the CO two. Yeah. Well, is your friend's son in college or high no, school? No, no, he's he's three years old. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so they're even pulling that on him at the age of three. No, 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 no. You know, he's he's no he, his. His parents listen to this show, so he's got no problems. Yeah. I was just thinking that okay. it's, it, it's rare that somebody would be interested in this and actually taught how the world works. You can imagine someone else's son immediately being told, if they're in Berkeley or something, or Boulder for that matter, immediately yeah. being told about global warming. And in fact, I saw that this my friend's son was inadvertently given a book which was so called something like Santa's Green Christmas, which was in... in effusively endorsed by Al Gore and it, it was just about how we're ruining the planet through warming. Now fortunately his sister caught the book and so he did not get exposed to that propaganda but that's what you know a lot of parents would consider themselves doing uh, doing their kids a favor by teaching their three-year-old about global warming. Being environmentally conscious. Yeah actually a very egregious thing now a guy named David Suzuki who is uh very big-time warmer guy and uh, media fellow up in Canada, 
and he's released a video with drowning reindeer. You know, Santa's home is flooded away, so the reindeer are drowning off with the polar bears. And yeah, and this is for kids. <laughs> I mean, Suzuki Suzuki's vices know no depths. I've been to Canada a lot and spoken there yeah. a lot, so I've become familiarized yeah. uh, with him. All I can say is I, I hope to get a debate someday. <laughs> I doubt he, you know, these people don't like to debate it. You know, they, they, they don't like factual information. But anyway, I mean, in the schools, though, it, it, it is written into the curricula about global warming or climate change or whatever. And a lot of the scientific societies are aiding and abetting this by saying there is only one really true story. But these are groups where essentially there have been hostile takeovers of the, the committees that run them. You know, everything from the American Meteorological Society and American Geophysical Union and so on, because that's where the gravy train is. They have to support global warming. You know, yeah, the scientific societies are are shameful, and in my view, I mean, I think if you know if there's a hell in this discussion, they they belong there because they are they're using the prestige of science to act as if they represent these weaselly statements, represent their membership, and also they're they're taking political stances, which has doesn't follow at all from their expertise. Like when the American Physical Society talks about dramatic political action. I mean, they don't know anything about economics or energy, so how would they know what action should be taken? And, and they don't know anything about climate. Yeah, that's true as well. What, American Physical Society, what do they know about climate? You well, know, the, They the, know much about climate as a climatologist like me knows about bosons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that, that's, a good, that's a good point, uh, too. So what's the overall summary of what's happened with average global temperature insofar as we can know it versus what's been predicted. Okay. Um, so the prediction, you know, Arrhenius back in 1860 really didn't make a numerical prediction. <coughs> so the prediction game we can say started about 1970, give or take. And that's about when I got my PhD. I was working at Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research and in Boulder here and got a PhD thesis topic was climate change in the Arctic, specifically Baffin Island. And actually in that thesis, I offered a projection into the future, but the committee told me to remove that because it was too speculative. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I did, you know, I, I felt, well, actually that's a reasonable point. It is speculation. Well, now papers are, predictions. It's all they do is they come with, a, you know, how's global warming going to affect the frog population of Frostbite Falls? And they come up with a big paper about this, about how many frogs there will be in 2100 AD and how many legs they're going to have. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of taken over the scientific community. So we're wasting a lot of good talent, I dare say. They could be solving a real problem like, uh, oh, severe thunderstorms or something, you know, that really hurt people. But anyway, what was your question again? <laughs> well, oh, yeah, it, it, how predictions have evolved. 
Well, actually, one of my favorite papers, and I think it was a very good paper by a guy named Stephen Schneider and several other fellow named Rasul. And papers called Rasul and Schneider. I think the date on is 1972, and they compared. CO2 and aerosols, soot in other words, and they came up with a number for CO2, which is actually pretty realistic for what's been observed. They predicted a fractional of a degree warming due to that, but the effect of the aerosols they overestimated, and they said the aerosols, if they double, would cause several degrees of cooling, which would be enough to trigger an ice age. And so that was one of the papers that factored into the Ice Age scare of that time. But the paper itself had a pretty good handle on CO2. But since the IPCC and Al Gore and the the Rio Convention back in 1990, and then the uh, U.S. National Climate Assessment and, and the Global Change Research Act of 1990, and actually I'll read from this $2 billion research act, It's aimed at understanding and responding to global change, including cumulative effects of human activities. So it's, in other words, two billion bucks a year to study what humans are doing to the globe. Okay, so go from there. They start predicting ever bigger changes. And the Earth is measured by satellites and weather balloons. And actually, even most of the uh, surface weather station sets, has not kept up with that. The satellites have a warming of about one-fourth of what the models have predicted. And somebody, I think it's Roy Spencer at the University of Alabama, put out a very nice chart, and he titled it 97% consensus, 97% of the models agree that the observations are wrong. Right. Yeah. I have I have a version of that in, in my book Moral yeah. Case for Fossil Fuels. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the iconic images of the Anthropocene, which of course is, you know, <laughs> the the age of humans infecting the environment, is this graph showing the divergence between the predictions and predictions made over the years and then the reality. And there's no connection between the two. And, and I just want to bring people's attention to these claims that, that you'll hear in the media that the organization 350.org has popularized. That's the one started by by Bill McKibben, where they'll give yeah. these numbers. And, and th- that organization, among others, have helped popularize this number of two degrees Celsius, that this is this tipping point and that if we emit X amount of CO2, then it's definitely going to lead to two degrees Celsius. And this, I just always say to people, these are all based on climate prediction models that can't predict climate. So they're just, they're mumbo jumbo. Yeah. You know, well, tipping point, I don't think tipping points exist because the earth in the past, you know, earth's been around 4 billion years and it's been a lot warmer than the present and it's been a lot cooler than the present. And yet we haven't hit a tipping point. You know, we haven't turned into Venus. Yeah, I don't know what tipping point means. Yeah, tipping point is that it gets hot enough and you start getting a runaway release of greenhouse gases. You know, all these, this methane comes out of the permafrost and bubbles up from the ocean and limestone starts disintegrating back in the sea, you know, CO2. All these horrible things start happening and we end up like Venus, which is 
like 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, Venus is also gets twice as much sunlight. You know, it's <laughs> you know, it's 30 million miles closer to the sun. Of course, it's going to be hotter there. So, <laughs> well, it also it doesn't have 0.04 percent atmospheric CO2. It's got 90 something percent, right? Yeah, it's okay. The theory of the you know the planet formation is that most of the atmosphere came out of volcanoes, so it's gases spewed out from the magma in the interior of the Earth, and the gases that come out of volcanoes uh, largely CO2 and water vapor, and the CO2 apparently on Venus is equivalent to the amount of CO2 that historically, and by historically, I mean four billion years, went into the atmosphere of the Earth. But in the Earth, it's all now back down at the bottom of the oceans in limestone. <laughs> so then what they're saying is it gets hot enough, and it's going to have to get really hot to do that for the limestone to disintegrate to release all that CO2 back in the atmosphere, and then Earth ends up like Venus. Yeah, I mean, you can make I mean, up anything. That's the only place we can get that amount of CO2 is from the limestone. But to do that, the Earth already has to be up several hundred degrees. So, you know, this whole concept of tipping points is ridiculous because it hasn't happened in four billion years with bigger events. As a matter of fact, it happens every year. Northern Hemisphere warms up 40 degrees every six, every 12 months. <laughs> You know, <laughs> how come we don't reach a tipping point? You should publish a fake article about that. Like <laughs> Northern Hemisphere warms. No, seriously, you could get a lot of attention for it. Like, you know, vindication for James Hansen. Northern Hemisphere warms 40 <laughs> degrees. Uh, if it warmed, you know, if trend continues, catastrophe yes. awaits. <laughs> well, a lot of people joke about that about... February and March every year. Yeah, global warming for the next four months, like it or not. <laughs> and generally, I like it. So, All right, Richard. Well, I thought this was really fascinating. I, I learned a lot. I'm sure a lot of others did, too. Uh, where can people find more of your work? Oh, boy. Um, I wish I had a website, but I don't. I post on some of the websites. Uh, a couple of my favorites are What's up with that? You're probably familiar with all these. Sure. Yeah. And Steve Goddard is the name of this guy. This guy's name's Tony Heller, but he's a site called Stephen Goddard. And and he simply likes to post the data with a minimum of commentary. And on all sorts of things, be it climate or gun ownership or something, you know, just post the data. You know, our, our yeah, they hate, they hate, you know. they hate that guy so much. He, on, he's got a great Twitter account too, which I would recommend just cause he just, he publishes just all kinds of stuff with little comment, but even <laughs> my, yeah. my yeah. favorite one of his is he has one of these old pictures, uh, with I think some Egyptian or the equivalent ripping out somebody's heart because of the oh, climate yeah, the gods. Mayan. Yeah. The the human sacrifice to yeah, prevent a drought. Exactly, and, 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 this and now is, they want us to sacrifice our standard of living. At least not ripping our hearts out, but definitely uh, messing with our comfort and happiness to prevent a drought. Yes. 
Yeah, to prevent a drought that only industrial civilization can can actually enable us to cope with. So it makes yeah. a lot of sense. And, you know, these droughts simply aren't happening. Um, you know, they're, you know, no more than they have in the past. Steve Goddard says he's really neat. He pulls out these old headlines, too. I don't know where he gets them, but, you know, headlines from you know, 150 years ago saying the Arctic ice is melting and will disappear by 1870, you know. <laughs> he must be an active LexisNexis uh, searcher. Or may, I think Google now has some of the similar the, the tools that, for those who don't know, LexisNexis is a, a pretty cool uh, old yeah. new to, news database, old and new uh, news database uh, search. But yeah, that's we'll, so we're, we'll refer people to both of those pages and, and link to some of your articles. Any final thoughts for the listeners on this topic or any other topic? Well, maybe I'll quote Yogi Berra, you know, the late great Yogi Berra. Uh, my feeling towards climate is you can observe a lot by just watching, which means you observe it to see what's going on. You don't do models, because I think the models simply misinform you. And as for unprecedented events, I guess I could actually give two quotes. One would be uh, Solomon, I believe, King Solomon, who said, there's nothing new under the sun. In other words, it's all happened before. Or back to Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again. And the more you study a history of the climate, the more you see that. Awesome. Richard, thanks so much for being on the show. Okay. Hey, Alex, great. Thanks again to Richard Keen for being on the program. Uh, I got to ask all the questions I wanted to. I, I thought it was really fascinating. I really liked how he broke things down and he just could explain things very, very clearly and straightforwardly. And you can tell that he just has a real interest in the way things work and is very apolitical about it. So I really appreciated that. I hope you did as well. All right. Final notes. Make sure to get your hands on how to talk to anyone about energy. That is our new course for aspiring energy champions. You can get it at energychampion.net. I've talked about it over the past couple shows. I think you'll really enjoy it. Just go to that site, energychampion.net, press play and, and see what you think. You'll you'll get about the first, almost the first quarter of the course, because I figure, well, if it's good for you, then I might as well show it to you. If it's not good for you, I'm not going to do some, you know, highlighty intro video. I'll just if it's not good for you, it's not good for you. But if you like this show, if you want to be able to persuade people, it is good for you. So don't take my word for it. Watch the first bit. If you're still on the fence, get it. If it's not amazing, we'll definitely refund your money. But it'll be amazing. Quote, unquote, trust me. All right. If you have any questions for me or any comments for me or any love mail for me or any hate mail for me, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. To subscribe to our newsletter, go to industrialprogress.com and give us your email. Uh, to hang out with us on social media, go to Facebook or Twitter and search for Alex Epstein, I Love Fossil Fuels, I Love Nuclear, or Center for Industrial Progress. 
Next week, we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.